and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And we are back with number 18 on that AFI Top 100 list of films, 1927's The General. The General. Which I had no idea what that title meant. Didn't know it was a train. I thought that this movie was The Great Dictator. That's what we discussed last time off mic that we thought like... Is this the Chaplin one? Turns out, no. Different silent film. Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. So I think the best way to handle this is we jump into a plot synopsis and we'll go from there. All right. This has surprisingly more plot than you'd think for a silent film. The General is the story of Johnny Gray, a Georgia train engineer at the start of the Civil War. Johnny has two loves, his train engine named The General and his fiancée, Annabelle Lee, which I wonder if that is a Edgar Allan Poe reference. We'll talk about it. When the war breaks out, Johnny rushes to be the first to enlist, but is turned away because, as an engineer, he is too valuable to the South to fight as an enlisted man. As he leaves the enlistment office defeated, Annabelle's father and brother misunderstand him and assume he is too cowardly to enlist. Annabelle threatens that she will not speak to Johnny until he is in uniform. A year later, Annabelle is traveling north to visit her wounded father. She rides on a train pulled by the general. At a stop for lunch, all of the passengers disembark except for Annabelle, and she is accidentally taken prisoner by a group of Union soldiers. These soldiers are spies, and they plan to steal the general and destroy all the bridges between their present location and the north. Johnny chases the engine and gains the help of the Confederate Army. However, the cars that the, that the Confederate soldiers are on are not attached to the engine Johnny drives, and he's forced to chase after the general on his own. Johnny chases the Union soldiers, enduring many challenges, and when he reaches Tennessee, the Confederates retreat as the Northern Army advances. Johnny is forced to hide in the woods. That evening, Johnny breaks into a northern-held home, but has to hide under the dinner table as Union soldiers eat and plan their assault. He realizes that the soldiers have Annabelle in their grasp. The two are able to escape back into the woods, however. The next day, Johnny is able to steal back the general and plans to warn the South. He is followed by two Union trains in reverse of the first chase. Johnny sets fire to a key bridge before returning Annabelle and the train to the southern camp. Annabelle is reunited with her father, and the northern trains are destroyed when the burning bridge collapses, allowing the south to hold the line against the advancing northerners. Johnny, returning to his engine, discovers a northern soldier regaining consciousness. Johnny turns him in, and for his bravery and deeds, is made a lieutenant in the Confederate Army. As he is now an officer, Annabelle embraces him, and he returns her embrace with one arm, while saluting soldiers with his other, as the film ends his fiance doesn't necessarily have the best motivations no i would say a definite no on that one (laughs) first 15 minutes or so of the film i was really just not into because it was just you need to have a medal or don't talk to me and then the father (laughs) and brother like you're a disgrace to the country to the south to the confederacy you're like yeah he's apparently got a pretty good job and that's why they're like hey, no, don't take this guy because he's very valuable to us, logistically speaking. And yet they don't communicate that to him. So he keeps trying to do that thing where he steals someone else's draft card or enlistment form or whatever. Or he tries to pretend he's a different guy. 
and it, it doesn't work, of course, and he leaves in disgrace. But it's like, none of this should have been a problem. There should have been no misunderstanding. And a whole year goes by before anything changes. Yeah. yeah. It, that was kind of rough. I was also confused because I thought throughout this entire film until I uh, was doing a little reading um, while I was writing my synopsis. The uh, I thought the brother was another boyfriend. I was very confused. I knew it was her brother. I'm not sure what tipped me off to that. But she does kiss him on the mouth when he leaves. Yeah, that's why I was like, oh, she must be after this guy? I don't know. It was con- I was confused. Well, that must have been more normal then because do you remember It's a Wonderful Life? James Stewart kisses oh, yeah. his mother on the mouth. And True. they're like full adults. It was... I'm not into that. It's such a weird thing. There should be delineation between romantic love and then familial love, but that's just me. Let's have some initial thoughts about the film. What'd you think? Um, you know, I, I thought that it was, it was all right. Um, I, you know, silent films are always a little bit of a challenge. I feel like because the, the medium has changed so drastically and the kinds of things you have to do in silent films you don't do in 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 films with with sound um so i don't know i i always find silent films to be either like a big hit or a big miss um and this one was was strangely kind of it it was fine um the train stuff was fun and interesting but i mean i was never on the edge of my seat watching this film I don't think there's any expectation for you to be on the edge of your seat. I'm not even sure that 1927 audiences are on the edge of their seat thinking no, like probably not. it's not high drama necessarily. You know, it's antics and it's fun. There's fun stuff going on, but you're never thinking, oh, is Johnny going to get captured here and put to death as a spy? Like, yeah, that's not really no the tension. Yeah. So I'm not really expecting to have a, a nail biter for a film. But what I will say is I really started to enjoy this film around 22 minutes in. Mm -hmm. That's what I label as the opening of the train antics part. Yeah. There's actually something, I think, 26 minutes, I marked it down and said, good log shot. Because he takes that beam (laughs) and throws it at the one that's laying across the track. it knocks it up. It knocks it up and off the track, which is yeah. a one-take thing, right? One thing I'll talk about when we get to our three questions that Buster Keaton, for his gags, he would just do them one take because if you can't do them and make them feel real and present to the audience, there's no reason to have them. So anything that yeah. was like really rehearsed like that, that would have been in any other film, was just simply not done. I don't know how much we can take him out of his word there, but it definitely seems like a lot of this stuff was very high skill. And a lot of it was like, you really can only get one shot at it. Yeah. It does strike me that a lot of the um, stunts or effects or whatever you want to call them in in this film are... The stakes are fairly high, I think, in filming them. This does not appear to me to be a very safe movie to make. (laughs) No, probably not. Though, with Buster Keaton doing all of the stunts, you imagine the risk is a little less spread out than it would be. But I did read on the internet that, that it was, uh, there were quite a few injuries and, and some serious ones. Also, apparently they kept having trouble, um, with the wood burning train engines that kept lighting fires. And apparently there were farmers haystacks 
around wherever they were filming and the haystacks kept catching on fire and they'd have to pay the farmers uh they they had trouble with fire (laughs) yeah the film isn't actually filmed in the south it's like in oregon or someplace like that they just packed up and shipped out there because it'd be cheaper to do Mm-hmm. and they just brought everything up there trains and all and then like the 500 extras for the soldiers that they used mm-hmm. but my pivotal scene for this film is that train antic sequence because it really was where i started to key into the film and actually become interested in what was going on whereas mm-hmm. i think the first 15 20 minutes was just like man this relationship sucks he shouldn't be here i don't know yeah. why i'm supposed to care about this but he won me over with those now there's not any audio that's going to be following this because it is a silent film. Yeah. So I just kind of want to enumerate. We already enumerated the log throw one, but he has a cannon attached to the end of his train and he messes around with that. And you think it's going to shoot him for a while. Very Chaplin-esque gag. Mm-hmm. They're contemporary, so you, you can't really say, oh, it's a Chaplin-esque or it's Keaton-esque. I'm sure there are people who will argue one way or the other, but they yeah. were active around the same years, born very similar like mm-hmm. 1890s early 1890s but in any case it's is a funny moment and then the the track turns and so it actually shoots the union train right the the stolen mm-hmm. train his stolen train with the union spies on it and it's just stuff like that where there are some of the setups that you can see and kind of expect where they're going to go but then there's some like that canon sequence where i really didn't know how that one was going to go i thought maybe it was going to hit his train and you can think well what kind of rules we playing by here is he going to be seriously maimed because of a cannon shot or is it one of those bugs (laughs) bunny-esque he's covered in soot but okay kind of thing so i really enjoyed that and those persist throughout the rest of the film Mm -hmm. and that brings me to a rough kind of thesis for this film for the general i think it's not funny necessarily like a a chaplin film is i think with Chaplin, we are we we find it to be more funny, but I think this is a fun film. Like I think the stuff that goes on it is far more fun, yeah, pound for pound, than something we get in a Chaplin film. Well, I, I the sense I get is that a lot of the Chaplin stuff does have political overtones, or you know, there there there's there's often some sort of critique. I think attached to a lot of the the gags, at least in a light way, in 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 these Chaplin films. Um, I mean, just think about you know it, the the whole uh, musing on being a cog in the wheels of capitalism, where you know Chaplin literally becomes a cog in the machine. Uh, that I think is 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 empty here. There there isn't. We don't have that in this film. Um, so, so I, I like this idea that, that you're going after here, that it's fun and, and that's just really kind of what it is. It's just fun. Yeah. I don't think anything comes close, but maybe one thing that gets closer than most is you have all the officers, the union looking at the damaged train track that Chaplin, not Chaplin, that Keaton has messed with (laughs) and he's looking at it for a while and it's like maybe five minutes of actual film time that they go back and forth between Keaton and and the the crew here doing this and then the engineer walks out hits it with the back of an axe <laughs> sets it down and walks away so there is a little commentary about kind yeah. of the you know too many chiefs in the tp kind of thing but right. yeah i think that's the only one that really felt like a commentary almost everything else was just a gag not to be de- you know depreciating of it i really did enjoy a lot of those gags 
For instance, I think the sword slinging one toward the end of the film. Yeah. Where he picks up a damaged sword and it keeps flying off and he keeps throwing it at things and eventually he kills a sharpshooter. Kills, yeah. I thought that was good. I'll, I'll, now that we're kind of on this little this little uh, vein, though, I, I will say that I ran into a moral dilemma watching this film, and I'm interested to see if you also had it. Did you feel conflicted cheering for Buster Keaton's character? Not really, because I don't feel like he's actually associated with the Confederacy. He is just this chaotic force on his own right he doesn't do quite as much damage to the confederate soldiers as he does the union but i can suspend my disbelief and say this is a conflict and either side can be valid in a conflict let's say i mean it's really devoid of the politics of the civil war i don't feel incredibly comfortable seeing the confederate flag all the time in that film and at the end he has to tries to run forward and raise it there's a little gag there where he's actually standing on the other officer Instead of the rock, he thinks he's standing on. But I, yeah, that was a little weird. But ultimately, I think it's it's so neutered from the conflict itself that it doesn't make me feel terribly bad about it. Though I wonder why this wasn't told from the winning side, because it's 1927. Yeah, and from what I understand, the it, this is based on some... Uh, I'm not sure if it's a novel or a short story, but it's got... There is source material... Um, and it and it does have some basis in in real events, except that in the source material and and I believe the real uh, events, the the sides are swapped. It's you know what we would see of, as the protagonist Buster Keaton's character uh, is from the northern side. So it it was an intentional choice to place the Confederates at the at the center which again is just kind of a strange thing and to to i guess i always feel a little bit of discomfort when we strip the civil war of its sort of political meaning because that's kind of like stripping world war ii of of its political meaning which is which we've we've discussed on this podcast before being somewhat problematic like having a bit like it's it's tough to see nazis as like a cult you know like they're evil because they're interested in the occult and shit and not evil because they like murdered millions of jewish people for being jewish and others and others yeah of course yeah i understand what you're saying i think that's valid but on just a basic emotional viewing level i don't think it affects my viewing that much which is not to say that it can't intellectually right which is what we do here, right? <laughs> That's the whole purpose. We of try this. to, <laughs> but I, I don't think it, it actually marred the enjoyment that much. Although there was discomfort, right? And I think that's really the only place I can come down on with it because I haven't thought through it fully. Yeah. Because I was wondering, you know, that you said that it was it was reversed. That's even more questionable now. It's yeah, not like, it's... well, I just want to be honest with the source material. It's actually doing opposite. So you have to wonder. And I don't want to speculate too much, but it's like, is it better at that time to do a Southern-centric film? Does that gross more? Like, is he really money-minded about this, or what's the situation? I understand maybe trying to want to set up an underdog-style 
you know, shorthand, I guess, right? Perhaps at this moment, the, there is sort of an understanding for, for among white people that are able to go see movies that, you know, uh, the, the Confederates are some sort of underdog thing, right? But I don't know. I Yeah, I just found myself being like, oh, I feel weird being like, get them, Buster, when it's like, oh, no, those are the northern, don't get them, Buster. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and I wonder if it's just was seen as more of a safe war in 1927 yeah. because World War One was not all that long ago, right. whereas Civil War is a little bit more removed with the last major U.S. conflict before World War One, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I, I wonder if it's just like a touchstone that was more comfortable than we are with it today. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's we- At the very least, I'll say it's weird. Um, it's, a, it's a strange choice. Yeah, I agree with that. So to finish up my thought about some of the differences between Keaton and Chaplin, Roger Ebert said that Lloyd, Harold Lloyd, made us laugh more. Chaplin moved us more deeply, but no one has the courage that Buster Keaton had. Mm -hmm. And I think that courage is on display with all these antics because he's doing his own stunts. He's coming up with the gags. I watched a short video because I just wanted to know more, because I'd always heard the name Buster Keaton, never seen the film, didn't know who he was, and heard him being interviewed at some point about, it was about 50% improvisation once he got on the set. He'd have a rough idea of what he wanted to do, and then serendipity or technical limitations or opportunities presented themselves, and they just worked from there. Mm-hmm. And again, he, he mentions that, we can't do it in one take. We need to throw the gag out because it needs to feel fresh and new. Don't repeat things. Don't try to shorthand things. Mm-hmm. You can call back to other jokes, but don't just replicate jokes in the same way. So I found that very compelling. I, I think that shows through in the film in a way that I would have guessed to be intangible before having watched that video because I go back to that log throw every time, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it feels, wow, that was a high skill thing. That's so interesting. I enjoy it. And then to know that they probably only did one take of that or really one attempt, or, I mean, if we take him at his word, right? Who knows? But right. that that feels very true, right? I, I enjoy that aspect of the film. Mm-hmm. I Yeah, I, I, I can concur with you there. Well, Ethan, I think it's time for us to turn to our three questions. Yes. Before that, though, let's talk about Anchor. (gasps) Yes, let's. Okay, three questions. First question, as always, what do we owe to this film? Well, you know, just like some of these other silent films that we've looked at, the the antics of of Buster Keaton and uh, Charlie Chaplin, you know, these these have become stunts that you see replicated in cartoons and other films. And I, I just think that there's something about the physical comedy that really continues to resonate today, that it, it's a very specific kind of physical comedy. It feels almost vaudevillian, uh, which, which makes sense for the time period. And for Keaton, right? Cause he was raised as one. Exactly. Right. So I think that at the very least we owe a certain kind of physicality that still gets used in, in films and television today to, to a film like this. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I maybe can further that a little bit with, I have a lot written down for this section actually, but the first thing I wrote was spectacle question mark, but like in a good way. Yeah. And what I think I mean by that is there's such an ambitious attempt at spectacle here. It's not something that is cheap. It's not CGI. There's a lot to be said for practical effects. Keaton, again, in that interview I was watching slash listening to, talked a lot about you have to make it real. If it's not going to be real, it's not worth doing. So he'd do the stunts. He would put himself in more perilous situations than perhaps he should in his position. But he would do those things because he wanted the audience to actually feel connected to the material. And I think that's always a good argument for practical effects. We're well documented throughout this podcast about what we feel about practical effects versus just CGI. And I think this is the kind of spectacle, evidently, I'm not sure if this is true just because it didn't look like it to me, but evidently it's a real train they dug in the river there at the end. I, I, I think it is actually. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, and, and I, and I agree. I think that this film at the, at, at its very core is, is really about the spectacle. The plot matters only enough to get people into the places they need to be. The real meat of the movie, the, the, the real thing that's, you know, sets it apart from other films is the unrelenting spectacle that that almost never lets up. There's always something more to come, and and to be these these kinds of uh, you know stunts or or gags or or whatever where where they are you know there there you there is no CGI here like you said this is all practical this is all you know at times even you know devised on set right that right then i think that that's sort of amazing uh to to think about and and this really distinguishes it from other films we've we've seen uh and other films that continue to be made right like this is this sort of really authentic spectacle that is is not it's easy to imitate but hard to replicate yeah and we do have several figures that we know of who were inspired by buster keaton here are some who were on record as admitting being influenced mel brooks Mm -hmm. and johnny knoxville of jackass (laughs) said he got a lot of his ideas for that show that movie through buster keaton antics buster keaton stunts that's surprisingly high culture for johnny knoxville i think there's a little bit more to johnny knoxville this is a sort of tangent but i think there's a lot more johnny knoxville than than he presents Less on yeah there's a film the ringer i think it's a pretty good one that he does a good job in, and it's actually fairly nuanced and well that's all beside the point but i also yeah. think just modern stunt person yeah. The idea of doing stunts, I think Buster Keaton pioneers that in a lot of ways. And then there was a lot that that video I watched brought up and did side-by-side comparison of a lot of Jackie Chan's stuff. Oh, that makes sense. Is like shot-for-shot shot Buster Keaton antics. Not the fighting, obviously, but... Right. Although we should mention that the Johnny Gray character is actually kind of a badass in this film. Yeah, he... he kind of is he runs under the train knocks three people out and then steals it in right. short order and then when he's trying to liberate his fiance from the house it's like a metal gear solid on-site procurement sneaking mission yeah. he gets out 
knocks the guy over the head with a piece of wood, takes his outfit and his gun, knocks the other guy out, and they escape into the woods. So he's actually a fairly competent fighter. Yeah. Even though he's hilarious throughout. But right. so the Jackie Chan stuff, then a lot of Bill Murray, mm. like physical expression, physical comedy, just posture. They actually have a shot from the general where he's sitting on the train as it's running. So he's going up and down, right? And he's got the dejected mm-hmm. face. That's like, like one of the exact same postures Bill Murray has in a different movie. I didn't recognize the Bill Murray movie, but it, yeah. it was exact. And then a lot of Wes Anderson cinematography yeah. is influenced by Buster Keaton. Talking about Keaton's flat world. Things happen left, right, up, down, away from the lens and toward the lens. And you can think of something like Grand Budapest Hotel or even what Moonrise Kingdom, which we saw for this podcast a long time ago, if I'm not mistaken. Did we? Did we? I feel like we did, but that might have been like in the teens. If we didn't, that film as well. A lot of that lateral and vertical movement is something that Wes Anderson does a lot of as well. Well, I, I think we can see that certainly in, um, I think, did we do Mr. Fox, Fantastic Mr. Fox, or did we just do Isle of Dogs? We just did Isle of Dogs. Oh, because you can definitely see that in Isle of Dogs and absolutely in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, and I think that Keaton is a good example of someone pioneering this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And then I have kind of a crazy one here at the end, specifically this film, not Keaton necessarily. You notice the film is a far-flung escape northward, right, in pursuit, and then a retreat southward. So the entire film is is forward and back, right? Oh, yeah. Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, it, you're right. It is. It, it absolutely is. It's forward and back. It's very reductive, obviously, but there are some rudimentary connections you can make between those two films in how they're both structured in terms of the plot and speed. Yeah, I, th- I think this, well, and I mean, honestly, even, I guess we have to say, in in terms of other films we've seen on this list, um, the French connection with, with its chase scene, right? This f- entire film is a chase scene in the same way that the Fury Road is, a, is a, an entire chase scene, right? So yeah. even just thinking about this movie as something that is about, motion where the it's all it's only about getting from point a to point b and then from point b to point a i mean now that's not quite it's not it doesn't match up maybe as as well as neatly uh but to have a film that has this crazy chase scene you know it's it's hard to not think about this being the 20s version of that right and then just one final small thing you know the gag where it wasn't in this film but where the side of a house falls out and a character is standing somewhere yes. that they're not hurt. That's that's him. That's Buster Keaton. He did that. And now everyone replicates that. I thought that yeah. was really shocking because it's something that's used in cartoons everywhere and a lot of other films. And Everything. Yeah, all over the place. And in fact, I think, doesn't Charlie Chaplin do that in one of the Chaplin films we watched for this podcast? Yeah, I'm thinking it might have been Gold Rush. Yeah, I think it's Gold Rush. I think that's exactly what it is. Well, let's turn to our second question and ask, does this film hold up? This is a hard question with silent films. Um, does it hold up in a way that a modern audience is going to want to watch it? I, I I don't know. This is this is almost an entire... It feels almost like a different medium from modern cinema, right? It, it, it feels like something else. It feels almost like a stage play or... I, I don't know. It just doesn't feel quite the same because 
of its sort of practical, you know, physical nature, um, and and really this sort of lack of plot. I mean, this isn't a this isn't about the plot really at all, other than as an excuse to get our characters on trains to do a bunch of train gags and and things like that. Um, so does this hold up in in a meaningful way that you could get an audience today to go watch it? I I don't I don't know, which is maybe why things like this and the chaplain stuff have been like piecemeal broken apart um and and parts of it is, have been reused or replicated or or whatever uh but i don't know that there's anything aside from maybe like mad max which i think is an interesting comparison is i don't know that there's a 20th 21st century version of this film i don't think there needs to be right i'm gonna disagree with you and say i do think this film holds up because of something Keaton does to revolutionize the silent film in a way that no one else had done. Remember some of the other silent films we've seen, how many title cards, how many dialogue screens we see? Tons. There are so few in this because one of Keaton's philosophy was you have to tell an action. And there's a lot of conversations that happen in the film that you don't actually know, nor will you ever get to know what they're saying. But I felt engaged because i could almost imagine what they were saying given body language and the situation that surrounded them i thought the physicality was done so well that it did hold up for me because i was able to fill in the blanks in a way that something like a charlie chaplin film or what was it sunrise yeah wasn't allowing me to do it right it didn't allow me to participate in the film the same way so as a modern viewer i felt more engaged because of that aspect of it so in that way, I think it holds up. Now, there are clearly some things we need to talk about. We already talked about the competitory stuff, so I think we can lay that to rest for now. But yeah. some of the gender politics stuff, right, to write this shallow female character. She, yeah, she's basically a nothing character. Though there is a moment that I think gets slightly even more troubling where he's having her throw firewood into the train engine, and she's throwing like little twigs and she stops and she sweeps for a while, right? So this air of domesticity. And then he takes yeah. like a little toy and hands it to her so she can throw it in. And then like yeah. play throttles her for a second. And you think like, oh, okay, that's not not great yeah. today. So that as a particular example of a more general thing about the gender politics and of course confederacy aspects. But I think yeah. if you can stomach those things, I think that this film holds up very well. I think it's very engaging for a modern reader, reader viewer. There is a, a sort of Shakespearean aspect or or stage theatrical aspect to being able to like put the action to the word in a way that like as an audience member, you don't need to hear what they're saying to follow the plot, right? And and I I absolutely agree with that. And I think that that does mark this as very different from these other ones because you're right. It 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 keeps and it it also allows for better flow, right? We're not because we're not stopping to read these title cards so often. Um then you you can have these elaborate gags um and and you can have these big set pieces that flow and that, and there is that sense of motion, uninterrupted motion. I think you're right. So then let's move on to our final question. And do we care about this film? I think that it is very hard not to care about this film. If, if only because, again, and I, this I think we say a lot on this podcast, but it these these gags are are classic. You know, in a way that like there there are films on this list that it's that I would maybe say like okay, we can call them a classic, but what does that mean? I think here these are these are gags that that are remembered and are easily recognizable by 
probably most Americans. Most Americans will recognize something they've seen before because it has been so influential. Buster Keaton as a as a stunt person, as a practical, uh, you know, s- stunt man, um, is is the the original, the 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 big one, right? The the innovator. Um, in a way that hasn't been matched, I think, uh, in scope or or influence. Yeah, I'm prone to agree. I think the largest thing I take away from a film like this is how impressive it is for all the reasons we mentioned and on very different levels. And I think that's what really makes me think, oh, okay, I see why this is way up here at number 18. I was actively opposed to this coming into it, thinking this film... In the first 15 minutes anyway. Number 18? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I get it. And so I think we have to care about it for all the reasons that we've enumerated throughout. And uh, Oh, I had that, that, that reminds me of a question that we have begun intermittently asking on this podcast. Um, and it would maybe be a nice way to end. Is this a better film than Jaws? It's definitely better in its practical stunts. I, I, I guess I can kind of... I. I I don't know that I would necessarily call this a better film than Jaws, but I would call it in many ways a more impressive film than Jaws. It's pretty impressive. Jaws is also pretty impressive. Yeah, but for different reasons, for very different reasons, right? Well, it, plot and, and atmosphere are one thing, but I think also just a giant mechanical shark is pretty impressive. True, true. But I would still lean towards this one as more impressive. Now, the plot of Jaws is better than this, so I, I've given each an edge in a different area and they'll just have to fight it out in the arena of film (laughs) all right so that's all the time we have for today we will be back however next week with a bonus episode on patreon you can go over there donate five dollars a month to us and access the now 71 bonus episodes it's a lot of content a lot of content costs you very very little we'd appreciate it a lot And then after that, we'll be back on the AFI with number 17 on the list. Ethan, I'm excited for this one. You know what that one is? This one is, of course, uh, the classic film, The Graduate. Yes, often talked about on this podcast. We have talked about it a lot. Oh, I love this film, and I cannot wait. So until that time, I have been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. That's my. There will be spoilers. 100 films, 100 podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder, who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight, who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight, and that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast, and you can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers.